0: The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace." The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave to your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even in your exiled people, even your ex if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people and you redeem them by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was the cupbearer to the king. This is God's word.
1: One of the great things about doing a Bible reading plan is you end up reading books like Nehemiah books that you may perhaps not normally give attention to. Uh, And if you haven't read the book of Nehemiah for some time, then I trust that it will be a great blessing to you. Maybe you recently read it, I'm not sure. Um, But I wanted to begin this morning by answering the question, Why Nehemiah? Well, usually in term one, we start with a gospel, something around the life and the teaching of Jesus, which kind of leads us up to Easter. And I love that pattern, but I thought that having spent the bulk of 2019 in the gospels fixing our eyes on Jesus, that it would actually be refreshing and good for us to begin the year in the Old Testament. Um, secondly, Nehemiah is known as a great leader and in particular a man of vision. And so with this year being 2020, I thought, it would be, I thought it would tie in quite quite nicely. You see, to have 2020 vision is to have accurate and clear and sharp sight. And the book of Nehemiah, what we're going to do is obviously look at it in its Old Testament context, which is around the people of Israel, and then consider what a modern message to the church of today is. And through that, see what is God's vision for his church, Uh, his church universal, but it also provides opportunity for us to talk about our particular vision that God has given us. And the the big idea that I want to highlight is that God's vision is always accomplished together. It's always his people. It's always the team, the gathered body of God, the church as we come, as we know it. Uh, The book of Nehemiah has some really great themes as we work through it we'll be able to talk about, such as repentance. Um, Prayer is a significant theme through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah opens with prayer. Uh, We see Nehemiah praying in Persia and Nehemiah closes with Nehemiah praying in Jerusalem. There are 12 prayers uh, dispersed throughout the book. It's a book of vision, of leadership, of teamwork, and of warfare, uh, the physical warfare that takes place in the book. For us, in the church, translates to spiritual warfare and will allow us opportunity to talk about that and explore those themes. Uh, The book of Nehemiah also has many difficult-to-pronounce names and so apologies in advance to our Bible readers. Um, we're going to have to work a little bit harder with, uh, with pronouncing some of these names, but my word of advice to you is just be confident. Have a go, and if you get it wrong, no one will, will, will um, be offended or, uh, or be concerned. Even though this book is more than 2,500 years old, apart from the names, these are all important matters for us as God's people to consider. There is so much for us to glean from this ancient story. And I thought at the outset of what's going to be essentially an eight-week series, um, I would sort of show you the big ideas or the big themes that we're going to consider as we look through the book of Nehemiah. And the first is that truly spiritual work always involves action. Nehemiah is very much a book of action, but it is always grounded first and foremost in prayer, and that is significant. We see that a true vision of the church always arises from a true vision of God. As we'll talk about today, Nehemiah was a person who had an incredible vision of God. And that vision enabled him to have a vision for rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. The church is not built by individual effort, but cooperative teamwork. It's, the church organisation is not what builds the church, but it's the organised church um, that does God's work. It's a we, not an it. Whenever we speak of the church, we're speaking of people, we're speaking of the body, the family of believers. In Nehemiah's day, they built walls. And today, in fact, building walls is the last thing we want to do. Since Jesus came, we want to build bridges. We want to actually connect with people in our community and in the world who don't know Jesus. Uh, and that finally, you are a vital part of this work. As we will see in the book of Nehemiah, everybody plays a role <laughs> in rebuilding the wall and in a sense when we are part of God's church there is a role for everyone to play. As we'll come to see in a number of weeks even the perfume makers get involved with rebuilding the wall. What does a perfume maker have to do with rebuilding a wall? It sends us a clear message that no matter what our gifting or our vocation is we all have a role to play and we can all contribute to God building his church. Just a brief introduction to the book of Nehemiah. In our Bibles it comes before the Psalms but chronologically speaking it actually comes way after the Psalms in history. In fact, Nehemiah is the very last of the historical books of the Old Testament. The name Nehemiah means the Lord has comforted and through Nehemiah's efforts God's people would certainly receive comfort as security came through the wall being established The book of Nehemiah is quite unique in that it is largely a journal. It is a book of memoirs um, of journal entries on how Nehemiah leaves his privileged position of cupbearer to the king. Uh, And this was an important role where he would taste the food and the wine of the king to ensure that it wasn't poisoned. This was no mere butler's role either. It was a, a powerful and a privileged role Nehemiah was a trusted advisor to the king, meaning he was a person of real influence. And Nehemiah leaves this very comfortable high position in Persia to oversee the rebuilding of Jerusalem's wall against much opposition over a period of only 52 days. To sort of place this book in its... History. Our story begins in 445 BC in a place called Susa, which is the capital of Persia, at the summer palace of King Artaxerxes. Now, King Artaxerxes was the king after Xerxes, and Xerxes was the king during the time of Esther. And Xerxes was the king after Darius, and Darius was the king during the time of Daniel. Before King Darius was King Nebuchadnezzar, who very famously in 586 BC destroyed Jerusalem. The temple was burnt down, the walls were destroyed, and this led to the Babylonian captivity or exile, which the prophets, uh, significantly Jeremiah, had prophesied about for some time. And this particular event in 586 BC with Israel being carried away to exile was in a sense the last event of Israel's dark age, a 300-year period that had come after the split of the northern and southern kingdoms, um, the southern kingdom being Judah and the northern being Jerusalem. During this time of exile, Israel lost everything, physically as a result of their spiritual disobedience. But this should not have come as a surprise, for God had given his servant Moses commands for Israel to obey, warning in Deuteronomy twenty-eight fifteen, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. And then if you have a look at Deuteronomy 28, from verse 16 all the way through to 68, is a very extensive and detailed look of what those curses are. And many of them are experienced in the exile period. Now, Nehemiah was very aware of this. He was someone who obviously knew God's word, the Torah, very well. And so in his prayer, we read in verse 5, these are the words of Nehemiah, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands and the decrees and laws that that you gave your servant Moses. Obviously referring to those commands and decrees that are found in the book of Deuteronomy. Nehemiah begins by acknowledging the past, not to get bogged down or stuck in it, but to recognise its impact on the present. Doug highlighted this to us last week. We have to understand and recognise and acknowledge the past to know how to move forward in the present and in the future. Israel's current condition is a result of their own choices and actions. And Nehemiah owns his own role in this situation. Even though he is not directly responsible... He knows he is connected to those who have come before him. There is no finger pointing or blame shifting here. Before asking God to do anything about the problem, he first willingly owns and acknowledge what has been done and undone. In verse 6, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. In a highly individualistic society with a strong emphasis on self, it's easy to think of sins as only those things that we have done, that we may have a conscious awareness of. But we are, in fact, part of a body. Frequently and correctly, we use the term church family, church body, often. And so we're part of a family of believers And we always want the benefits of this, the blessings of being part of a community, but we easily forget that part of being connected to a family or a body means that we also need to accept that whilst we may not be directly responsible for certain actions or sins of others, both past and present, we are part of the collective body. And therefore, like Nehemiah, need to adopt a posture of confession, ownership, repentance before God. Nehemiah is aware that the situation the Jewish people find themselves in is something of their own doing. The same could be said of the challenges and the struggles the church has to be heard and understood in society today people are no longer willing to listen to the church because of past and even present abuses. In the book of Ezra, which parallels Nehemiah, we read about the decree of King Cyrus, also a king of Persia, almost 50 years after the deportation for the Jewish people to return to to Jerusalem and rebuild the kingdom. Now, not all, there were in fact three waves of people returning to Jerusalem. And in the book of Ezra we read about the first two waves and in the book of Nehemiah we read about the third and final wave. But King Darius had given permission for the Jewish people to return to Jerusalem and begin the process of rebuilding the first and most central thing to who they were and that was the temple, the place where the presence of God was met and experienced. Um, And so there had already been two groups of Israelites who'd returned to Jerusalem when we arrive in Nehemiah chapter 1. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, about 80 years have passed since that initial first wave of return. But things are not looking good. The temple was slowly built in spite of a lot of opposition, but the city, the walls in particular, and the gates still lie in ruins. And we read a report from Nehemiah's brother in chapter 1. And Nehemiah's brother was one who had returned some 1,000, the the commentary said 1,000 miles. I haven't translated that to kilometers, but it's obviously a significant journey uh, from Jerusalem to Susa, where Nehemiah was. We read in verse 1, In the month of the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel, that means like a palace, of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace." The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burnt with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I apologize there. In the ancient world, for a, bro- for a city, broken walls meant a lack of identity frightening insecurity and serious economic deprivation. And the news of Jerusalem's plight really upsets Nehemiah. It cuts him up inside because he loves Jerusalem. It's really important to him, and not because of its architecture or its physicality, but because of what it was and what it represented. This was his hometown. These were his own people. Bron and I this week have been feeling an ache over all the fires that are going on surrounding Canberra. It's that sense of of yearning for and feeling a concern and a connection to a place that was home. Nehemiah was in Susa, a long way from Jerusalem. And whilst he could have perhaps returned to Jerusalem in one of those first two waves, he'd obviously chosen not to. He decided to stay in Susa and in Persia. And we see here that while Nehemiah loved Jerusalem and had an obvious heart and care for for those people, he also loved Susa. And he loved Susa because he loved the God of Jerusalem and he knew that the God of Jerusalem, the God of the Israelites, in fact, loves and cares for all people. In Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 4 to 7, we read of a message that had been given to the exiled people that obviously were going to be in Babylon for some time and this is with the instructions that were given to the exiled people. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's the instructions Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Just hear that for a minute. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. That's powerful. Part of the reason Jerusalem existed was to bless places like Susa and Babylon. While the book of Nehemiah was about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, we can never escape its influence on the people of Susa. Nehemiah returns to Susa when the job of rebuilding is done. You see, Nehemiah doesn't just care for Jerusalem. He cares for the purposes of Jerusalem. And those purposes extend well beyond just the people of God. And this is actually the way that we're supposed to think about the church as well. We don't just exist to gather together as God's people. The calling of the church is to be salt and light and to share God's love with the rest of the world. The church is meant to be a blessing for others. And that is why God gathers his people together so that through them we can be a blessing to the world and be part of working with God to bring his kingdom reign on earth as it is in heaven. We spoke about this as our leaders' planning day yesterday. It's so easy for us, particularly those of us who are overseeing various ministries, to only measure the size and the success of our church based on how many people are part of our Sunday gatherings, when in fact one of the primary missions of the church is to bless and share God's love with people who are not part of the church. And in this regard, whilst there's always plenty of work to do, there was much that we could give thanks for regarding the various ministries of the life of this church that are touching countless numbers of people from this community who may not sit here on a Sunday morning, but experience something of the love of God through the people of this church. Now, Nehemiah's giftedness and gifts really helped the people of Jerusalem. And God has indeed given us as individuals gifts, but he also gives our congregation gifts to bless others. And important as the news of Jerusalem is, even more important is his reaction to the news that he receives. What is his first Reaction or what is his first response when he receives the news from his brother? We read in verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven. We see that Nehemiah's first reaction, his reactive act, if you will, is to mourn, And to weep. His first pro, his first action or his proactive act is to pray. He mourns, that's his first reaction, and then his first action is to pray. And I wonder if that's the pattern we follow in our lives. Mourning is a right act when something is broken. Let's not be indifferent or fake when we receive news that can cause us to see the brokenness in God's world, we should feel free and it is right and proper to mourn. But secondly then, let us move on to the response of our mourning, which is to pray. It's interesting to note that we don't hear of Nehemiah's cup until verse 11. We don't hear of his giftings and his abilities until after we hear of his desire to mourn and then pray. And I wonder if we oftentimes get things mixed up. When we face a difficult situation, and I'll be the first to put my hand up here, the temptation is to often look at our own abilities and to act. (laughs) What we see here, however, is a pattern worth following. We mourn we pray and then we seek the heart of God to find out from him where we go next. This doesn't mean that we don't and won't use the resources that God has given us and we will see that very much happening in this book. But it does remind us and speak to the order in which we go about doing things. Nehemiah had a heart for God and a heart for prayer. And we see that Nehemiah's prayers are driven by his vision of God. You see, we get it wrong when we think that our prayer will change God and cause him to do what we think he ought to do. It's the other way around. A true vision of God changes our prayers to align with his vision of us, of the church, and the world in which we operate. A true vision of God changes our prayer to align with God's vision of us, our church and our world. Nehemiah's prayers are always informed by who God is. To Nehemiah, God was the most extraordinary being. Here are some examples of what Nehemiah says about God which reveal his vision of God. He frequently refers to God as the God of heaven, meaning that God is over Everything, even though Susa is some distance from Jerusalem, Nehemiah knows that he can pray to God in confidence because God is the God of heaven. God is great and awesome. He is great, mighty, and awesome. God is glorious. He is the maker of the heavens and the earth. He is the one that heaven worships. He is the Lord of judgment and mercy. He is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, And abounding in love. Nehemiah understood the greatness and the faithfulness of God to his promises, and therefore he could have great confidence when he prayed to his God. We too can have great confidence when we pray to our God. And what a magnificent vision of God we read about in the scriptures. In verse 8 we read on, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. You see what Nehemiah does here? he actually recounts to God what God has already said he would do. He searches the scriptures. And he, in a sense, reminds God of a promise he has made. God never removes his offer of love and provision for us. He is always faithful to us. Verse 9, God had said, If you return to me, I will gather. Notice who does what here. Our task is to return. God's task is to gather. Too often in our lives, we easily find ourselves switching things around when we pray. We might say, God, will you return to me? God, will you come to me? God, will you go with me? God, will you stay with me? When instead... What we see here, it needs to be, God, I'm going to return to you. God, I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to return to your word and see what you say. God says, if you return to me, then I will gather. So often in life, and I know this firsthand, our inclination is to want to gather things to ourselves. We are, by nature, people who gather. We gather income. We gather super. We gather experiences. We gather influence. We gather followers and likes. It's what our human nature wants to do, is to gather things that will make us feel secure and in control. God says if you return to me, then I will gather. I'm reminded of Matthew 6.33. that says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. All of those things that I mentioned aren't bad things in and of themselves, but it's easy to make those things our first priority, gathering those things to ourselves God says, no, return to me, seek me and my glory, and I will gather all these things to you. I know Jack has preached on this very word to us previously. We need to hear this as individuals and a church. May we be a church that returns to God, that seeks his kingdom first and foremost, and is then built up by being a people who are gathered around Jesus. God says, return to me and I will gather. To close, on this point, the story of Mary and Martha in Luke 10 is very, very poignant. Martha is busy doing for God. She is occupied with all of the preparations. Mary, on the other hand, sat at the feet of the Lord, listening to, learning from and being with God, trusting and resting in his goodness. Listen to Jesus' reply to frantic Martha. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. God says, return to me. Seek me and I will gather. What we learn from Nehemiah chapter 1 is that the first step in being the people of God and doing anything for God always begins with honest, passionate and committed prayer. On that note, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your servant Nehemiah and what we're going to learn through this book. We thank you that Nehemiah is a book of practical action. And I personally relate so much to Martha, as I'm sure many others do. Many of us, Lord, want to do for you because we love you. And we know, Lord, that there are things that you call us to do and we look forward to doing them. But we see here that there is an order that sometimes in our broken humanity or our eagerness to please, we get things out of order and we act first and mourn and pray later. But in actual fact, what we see here is an instruction, an example to pray first. And so at the beginning of this year, Lord we want to commit ourselves to you, to be the people that you call us to be, salt and light in this world, and to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the ends of the earth. We can't do that before we spend regular and consistent time in honest, passionate, heartfelt prayer for the broken and the needy and the lost. And so, God, as we do that, would you disrupt and change our hearts that they might reflect your heart? And from that place, we may then go about the tasks that you give us to do. And we ask this, Lord, so that the glory will go to your name and not our name, because that's what we're interested in, your name being glorified above all. Thank you for this time this morning, and thank you so much for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.